Sota CBD products are scientifically proven and dermatologist approved to help with insomnia, overexposure to outside environmental elements, and other inflammatory issues. Scientific research is the starting point for every product they make, and Sota products are formulated to specifically address sleep and anxiety, environmental damage, as well as inflammation and pain, both systemically and topically. Sota CBD is purposeful in providing scientifically studied ingredients that are proven to work and then infused with CBD to target very specific disease states that many face every day. Go ahead, use coupon code FINDINGGENIUS, all one word, for a 25% discount at checkout. Visit SOTACBD.com to shop now. Use code FINDINGGENIUS. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Tad Zavitsky. He's a department chair, associate professor of philosophy at the Columbian College of Arts and Sciences. We're going to talk about a, a topic called mind shaping, which we'll get into in the details of because I'm not sure. But Tad, thanks so much for coming. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, what is mind shaping? So it's a hypothesis about what makes human beings unique compared to other even very closely related animals like chimpanzees. So one thing that is that really sets us apart from these other animals is that we are able to coordinate and cooperate with other individuals of which we have no personal knowledge. So a perfect example is this interview. I have never met you before. I know nothing about you. And yet we are getting along pretty well so far, having a successful conversation. I'm I'm Uh, shaping your mind in ways you can't even imagine at this moment. (laughs) And then uh, you couldn't imagine this with chimpanzees. Like chimpanzees, adult chimpanzees, that don't know each other, it's usually violent. So that's one aspect. And there, that raises a question, how is it that human beings can pull this off? Now, the traditional theory of this appeals to something called mind reading. And mind reading is just a view that human beings are kind of intuitive psychologists and understand what other humans are thinking. So we're able to coordinate really well because we're really good at reading each other's minds, at knowing what uh, other people are thinking. The mind-shaping hypothesis is an alternative. It's it's saying the mind reading is not going to work. And really what sets us apart is we shape each other's minds from a young age through things like education, imitation of role models, reading books that tell us how we're supposed to behave. And it's because our minds are shaped to be able to get along with people. That's why we can get along with strangers. Because even though you and I have never met personally, we've had our minds shaped by very similar influences. We've watched similar TV programs. We've been taught to to use the same language. We've learned the similar norms. And because our minds are products of the same or rough or similar shaping influences, 
from childhood on, we're able to get along and understand each other, even if we're not that good at reading each other's minds. So that's the mind shaping hypothesis. So if we came from a different culture, I guess you'd expect a lot more friction because exactly. again, a lot of the mind shaping would be different. That's exactly one of the predictions of the mind shaping hypothesis, that people from different cultures are raised very differently, will not succeed on coordinating as smoothly as people with similar backgrounds. It's kind of mysterious why you would expect that if we're a naturally born mind readers, like the traditional view has it. If we're just good at reading other humans' minds, it shouldn't matter that much that we're from different cultures. But on the mind-shaping hypothesis, that's what matters most, is how you've been shaped to predict how well you'll get along with someone. So yeah, that's one sort of, I would argue, point in favor of the mind-shaping hypothesis, because it's kind of a common observation that interactions, conversations go much more smoothly with people, the more similar your backgrounds are. Hey, but I've heard this, that thought under different terms like socialization or, you know, cultural identity. Is mind shaping different from those? It's exactly the same set of phenomena, but it adds new phenomena and puts them all under one category. So a lot of the things you were talking about have been treated as in, by separate sciences and seen as not necessarily related. So there's a lot of ways minds get shaped. For example, imitation, just conf blind conformity without thinking about it. The books we read, the, the heroes we espouse, the language we're taught to use, then just the straightforward teaching you get at school. What mind shaping does is it says all of these different practices actually have something very important in common. They make us more alike, which permits coordination, smoother coordination. So that's one uh, kind of difference. The other difference is those other approaches, you know, that talk about socialization and cultural identity, they don't speak much to the topic of how all of that emerged in human evolution, biologically speaking. Mind shaping is primarily trying to tie all of that social theory to the theory of evolution and explain why we became, why it was advantageous to our ancestors biologically to become so easy to socialize, right? To become so easy to culturally identify with. So that's another thing that the mind-shaping hypothesis adds to that tradition to which you point. Uh, finally, the reason I use the word mind-shaping is to really contrast it with mind-reading. If you read in the social... Uh, social cognition, the theories of social cognition in contemporary psychology and philosophy, they all, almost without exception, use this term mind reading. And what they mean by that I, is I, that uh, Good question. I thought mind reading was a cognitive distortion. When someone thinks they can read your mind, but they really can't, they don't know what's going on in your head. That would be the, that's the view I agree with. But oddly enough, since about the 1980s, a lot of psychologists and philosophers have used this term to refer to our natural ability to know truthfully what's going on in someone else's mind. It's thought that we're much better at that than other animals. And they coined this term for it, mind reading. But, you know, there's other like words. Like a dangerous thing to assume that people are good at. Not, you know, I know it's not your theory, but it sounds like a theory that would breed overconfidence in people's interactions. I don't know, yeah. what, are, what are your thoughts on it? Well, 
at first, when they started using this term, they meant it in a very specific way. They didn't necessarily say we were good at mind reading. They just said we tried to do it a lot. So, for example, there's a, a famous paradigm in developmental psychology where you try to figure out when children realize that other people have beliefs that differ from their own. And there's something called the false belief task, which you may or may not have read about. In the false belief task, there's a child sitting around and they're, and they're shown like a little play. There's two dolls and one doll is playing with a little toy that they really like. Then that doll puts the toy down on the table and the doll goes away. And the second doll picks that toy up and hides it somewhere. And then the first doll comes back. And then you ask the child, where is that first doll going to look for its toy? Now, the weird thing is that before the age of four, most children say it will look for the toy where it really is, as if the, it knew what the second doll did, right? It's only at age four that children realize that people can have false beliefs. They might not know what you know. So it's only by age four that children will say the first doll will look for the toy where they left the toy rather than where it is right now. That's called the false belief task. And it's supposed to be a test for whether a child has achieved what's called the theory of mind. Or in other words, they're able to read the minds of other people by knowing when their beliefs are false. So that's kind of the context where the, the word mind reading came in, right? But at that time, people weren't really studying how good we were at mind reading. They were just saying, you know, when do we start trying to mind read people? But if you think about it, we're actually pretty bad. We do try to mind read people a lot, but it's we're not that good at it. And it takes a lot of work to figure out what other people are thinking. I mean, I have two children and I still don't know most of the time what's going through their heads. So mind reading is not that easy for humans, but coordination, cooperation, conversation, these things are very easy for humans. We're doing it right now. And I'm not even trying to read your mind. It certainly doesn't feel like it, but I'm having a conversation. So that's one of the reasons I think that mind reading metaphor is limited. Sure, we try to mind read a lot. Sure, children before at age four become better at it, but we're still pretty bad at it. And most of our interactions don't involve mind reading. Does that make sense? So the CBD products are formulated with scientifically proven and all natural ingredients that a dermatologist approved to help with improving sleep and inflammatory skin diseases to support overall wellness. They're offering our listeners a generous 25% off their first purchase. Use coupon code Finding Genius. No spaces in there. One word. Finding Genius. To save 25% at checkout site-wide. To do so, visit SotaCBD.com. That's S-O-T-A-C-B-D.com. What about the shaping that occurs from someone's career? You know, I'll just give you a quick example. A friend of mine was very happy-go-lucky in college and kind of goofy, and then he ended up becoming a, um, a patent lawyer years later. And now when I speak to him, I can hear he's, his mind has been transformed by being in the practice of law and also engineering. So I can see that, you know, careers really, really shape people very heavily. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's entirely unsurprising on my view, because the reason we, our minds get shaped is to enhance our ability to cooperate and coordinate with others. So if your career involves having to 
coordinate and cooperate with a lot of engineers and lawyers, if you have to be part of that culture to succeed, then yeah, your mind's going to have to shape in order to get shaped in order for you to succeed. I've noticed this with family members. I was just talking about this yesterday about my brother. I, you know, I was on a Skype conversation with him yesterday and I was like, this is not the same person I grew up with. And I think it's largely sort of the milieu in which he moves. So that's definitely a big product. And the thing about mind shaping is it takes place on different scales so, you know, you can have your mind shaped for the purposes of a very short interaction, say you're given instructions about how to, you know, meet the queen or something. And you're set, you're told, you know, you have to bow like this and so forth. And, and you use it once, or you can have these longer term processes where you gradually sort of adjust to a particular cultural setting. And these ways of behaving become kind of second nature. I think probably the training we get, the shaping we get as children is probably the most significant, however. It's, for example, the language you are taught as a child or you pick up as a child. You know, people's accents stay remarkably stable, their lives. So, and I'm sure there are a bunch of other kind of deep kind of norms, normative assumptions you make about the world, which you pick up as a child, which are remarkably persistent. So now that uh, you're aware of this and you understand it, what do you do with it? What's your thoughts on how to, are you just in the understanding phase where you want to understand how this works? Or is it in a new phase where you want to use it to unshape or reshape someone's minds that's troubled? Well, it's interesting that you bring up the troubled aspect because I am in the process of sort of exploring the implications of this view for psychotherapy and for psychiatric disorder more generally. So it's well known that most psychiatric disorders have a strong social component. They're either triggered by social trauma or they involve some kind of deficit in understanding or adjusting to social context. And so I'm interested in the implications of the mind-shaping view for that now, as it turns out, there's a really interesting concept that's been highly influential in philosophy of psychiatry. It's the concept of a looping kind, which was proposed by a Canadian philosopher by the name of Ian Hacking. He wrote a book about multiple personality disorder, what used to be called multiple personality disorder. Now it's called dissociative identity disorder. And he traces the history of this disorder. It's really interesting. And he finds the roots of it in late 19th century France. And then it kind of goes underground. And then it just explodes in the 1970s in the United States, where you have people talking about having hundreds of altars. And, you know, there's even court cases where people claim they didn't commit a crime. It was one of their altars that did it. So in the context of this book, which is called Reinventing the Soul by Ian Hacking, he brings up this concept of a looping kind. And the idea of a looping kind is that once there is a a category, a psychiatric category that's widely available to the public, people start thinking of themselves in terms of this category and shaping themselves to respect the category, right? So he, hacking claims that the reason why there was this explosion of multiple personality in the 1970s is that it was like on talk shows and there were a lot of books published and people started interpreting their own experiences in terms of multiple personality and kind of playing the role. But you can't, you can't think of this in a cynical way. It's not like people on purpose are faking the disorder. It's more like this. 
there's something wrong with your life. You're, you're suffering. You have psychic suffering. You need help, right? But you need to find a way of conveying this using categories that are available in your culture. And so when you hear about multiple personality disorder, you're like, that's me. That's what's wrong with me. And you automatically, without even thinking about it, unconsciously start conforming to the multiple personality disorder diagnosis more than you did before you heard of it, right? So this kind of looping effect, my view, is a form of mind shaping. And it's basically a cry for help. People are like, I'm suffering. My life is not going well. I need help. And then you read about you know, the kind of people that get help, people with these diagnoses. And so you have an incentive to try and match the diagnosis so that you get help, right? So I just taught a class on what is mental health last semester for our master's students here at the George Washington University Department of Philosophy. And we were talking about this, this book by hacking and looping effects. And then I came across this really crazy article by the Wall Street Journal from last fall about this phenomenon on TikTok, where you get these people, these influencers who have like millions of followers on TikTok. One of them is got Tourette's syndrome. So Tourette's syndrome is like this tick where you can't help swearing or, or saying inappropriate things. It's a kind of reflex. But this Wall Street Journal article pointed out that all these kids, primarily female teenagers, were following this TikTok account and they started spontaneously displaying the symptoms of Tourette's, even though they had no history of it at all before watching these TikTok videos. That, in my view, would be a really super fast example of a looping effect in the sense that hacking was. That reminds me of a, of a story when my kids were little. There was a show called The Wonder Pets. And one of the, <laughs> the stupid characters in the show had a lisp. It would say, this is serious. And then my youngest started talking like that. And we're like, nope, you're not watching that anymore. So it, was, yeah. it was messing her up. You know? Yeah, kids do this stuff all the time. And, and so, the, I mean, that's one direction the mind shaping can take you is that, so for example, one issue in public policy is, you know, are there any limits to what can be expressed on the internet, Right. Now, if this kind of looping effect or mind shaping that you see on TikTok videos is real, then we might start thinking really hard about, you know, how responsible is it for people to claim to have a psychiatric diagnosis and then get millions of followers on TikTok or whatever, and where they start thinking of themselves in terms of this diagnosis, right? There are downsides to that. An example of a downside is what are called pro-ANA websites, which is really disturbing. Most internet service providers shut them down as soon as they find them, but they keep proliferating under different names. Pro-ANA is short for pro-anorexia. And there are these influencers who get up there and say, you know, it's good to be thin and all this, and they get millions of followers, right? So this kind of shaping through looping effects when it's plugged into social media technology can be potentially really dangerous, I guess. So that, that would be one example of, of a kind of practical application of the mind shaping idea. Well, have you, have you enjoyed the, uh, the masterclass in mind shaping we've all been subjected to for the past two years? Which, which is that? But you know, like, with the, the whole virus situation, it's oh, a, it's oh, you mean, an oh, absolute, absolute masterclass in mind shaping. It, you're totally right. And what's weird which is- Which we're, we're all a part, you know? 
uh, that's a great example. And and what's cool is like which group people you follow determines how your minds get shaped, right? And it's so once your mind is shaped in one direction, it's so hard to talk to people who've had their mind shaped in the opposite direction, if you know what I mean. So yeah, that's a classic case. I don't know. Is there a handbook pushback against mind shaping if it's going to be deleterious to you or people you know? Like where where can you take it from here? It sounds like, you know, the theory makes total sense, but how do you again defend against bad mind shaping that's to be perpetrated on you, how do you effectuate it in the right way, let's say, you know, for your own life and for other people's lives? So one, I guess this is off the top of my head, but I think just being aware how susceptible we are to mind shaping, whether we want to be shaped or not, right? Whether we agree with the direction in which we're being shaped or not, that's a really important first step. And, you know, there's a long tradition of, in philosophy, of drawing our attention to the degree to which ideologies kind of masquerade as though they are facts of nature and people think there's no other option. So, you know, a lot of 19th century philosophers, Friedrich Nietzsche talking about the power of religion in shaping minds, or Karl Marx also talking about the power of religion and those kinds of ideologies that make us think there's only one way of living, right? That's an old philosophical move to, to sort of make people aware of, of how these ideologies are kind of, they're not the only way of being, right? Even if you're raised to think they are. So just being aware that we're susceptible to these kinds of influences is already one step forward. But I think the greatest kind of cure for pernicious mind shaping is just things like traveling. Try to move out of your bubble, interact with people from as wide a variety of, of backgrounds as possible. You know, and because what that does is it shows you how things you've been taking for granted about yourself as being not changeable, as being necessary, as being natural, are actually just the result of how you've been happened to have been shaped. And people who've been shaped in other ways don't don't think of themselves that way. Don't have those assumptions about you know how people are so i think that's another really important thing that you do as a as an individual is just try to move in i mean at first it's very difficult right because part of what mind shaping does is it makes it very easy for us to hang with people and get along with people who have been shaped like us and being put in a context of people who haven't been shaped that way at first is very disconcerting it's it's uncomfortable but after a while, if, if you do it with many different groups, you know, you become, I think, much better at, at noticing the things about yourself that are just kind of arbitrary artifacts of how you happen to have been shaped. Well, it sounds like uh, this could be a huge thing that you've, uh, you've been working on. Have you thought about uh, or are you uh, interviewing various people that have gone through an experience that you would think would uh, definitely change their mind or shape their mind, maybe to see before and after, or to discuss with them their reaction to how they've been affected by a certain media? Oh, that's interesting. I, I haven't really done one-on-one -on -one interviews like that. I mean, most people who I talk to about this are, like you, think, 
oh yeah, this this happens all, all the time and are, are quick to tell me spontaneously or ask me about whether this or that is a result of mind shaping. But right now, it, empirically speaking, I'm working with a psychologist in the United Kingdom named Ian Apperley. He's at uh, Birmingham University. And we're looking more at groups. So one thing we're testing is whether it's easily people coordinate with each other. So the idea is this is a very simple task that you do online. It's like using, uh, I think, something like Google, uh, sorry, Amazon Mechanical Turks or something like that, where you fill out a survey, basically, and they ask you to kind of rank movies or mountains or car brands in order of how obvious they are, you know, the most prominent ones. And then they see how well you align with other players, right? And the hope is that eventually we're going to be able to look at the demographics of different people and see whether people who have similar demographics align better, right? So that's that's kind of an empirical test of the mind-shaping hypothesis that I'm involved with. And I'm also working with a philosopher who's actually in a medical humanities school at the University of Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee. And he we're working together on reconceptualizing mental illness. So our idea is that a big part of being mentally healthy is developing skills, what I call metacognitive skills, that is skills at regulating your own mental states, right? And being aware of, you know, certain tendencies and feelings um, and reactions and learning how to control them skillfully. This is a kind of approach to mental health that I think is different from the standard medical approach, which kind of says, you know, if you're going through psychological difficulties, you are, um, there's a kind of a chemical imbalance and you need to take pills. I think pills have a role, but I think there is also potential for agency here, for learning the skill of shaping your own mind. So that's another area I'm kind of exploring on the empirical end of things with a colleague uh, named Garson Leader at uh, the Medical Humanities Program at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Med School. Yeah, very interesting. What, what would be the guidance or the suggestions for people to approach their mental health in a different way when they're having difficulties, you know, using your mind-shaping concept? Well, in my own life, what's helped me tremendously, and I'm sure you've heard about this ad nauseum, but is, is mindfulness, the Buddhist in traditions, of learning the skill metacognitive regulation. I know that my name was suggested to you by a, a guest you had a couple of weeks ago named my colleague Ayala Aviv at the religion department. And he's also got a courtesy appointment in the philosophy department because mm. he is our re resident expert in Buddhist philosophy. And so I, I read texts with him, but I have been, I've been engaged in a meditation practice now for about 11 years. And I, you know, I was never diagnosed, so I don't know how this would work on someone who's diagnosed, but I certainly was facing a lot of distress in my life, uh, especially back then about 11 years ago, for no particular reason. It was just kind of, I guess, mid midlife crisis, who knows. But this practice of routinely attending to my own feelings and thoughts and, and learning gradually through practice how to not rush to judgment, I would say, has been very helpful for me. There's also a lot of empirical evidence that this sort of practice can have therapeutic benefits. In addition to sort of pharmacological interventions, this is, has proven to be quite helpful. 
So yeah, I mean, uh, that's all I know about it, but I, I want to learn more. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's a very interesting concept. I guess I'd, uh, you know, encourage you to to speak to as many people as possible and interview people that you think are in interesting situations and their minds will shape yours and, and your uh, research. But very, very fascinating. Um, what's the best way for people to follow up with you, Tad? Where can they go so they can learn more about this? So, well, they can email me. Can I put my email in the chat? Um, offline, good? it'd be better if you just um, just let me know to include it in the show notes and we'll do that. You know, no problem. Okay, so it's Savitsky at gwu.edu. So email's one way. And I can also share the link to my, share the link to my, um, you know, official departmental website, which has some of my publications listed. So here. We yeah, that'll, that'll work very well. That's great. Thank you. Just putting it up on the, on the chat and you're free to share it with your audience. Okay. Well, Tad, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. It was really fun. Remember, before you go, ask yourself, do you want better sleep? How about better overall skin? Using Sota CBD products is one of the best things you can do for your overall wellness. Get your CBD-infused products from a company who uses proven scientific research to help support wellness and treat inflammatory skin diseases. Sota CBD is giving our listeners 25% off their first purchase. Just use coupon code FINDINGGENIUS at checkout. Save 25% site-wide. Go to SOTACBD.com to shop. S-O-T-A-C-B-D.com. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.